I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Cara, acne can be tough. Whether your kid is just starting to get breakouts or has been struggling with them for years, there's a great product that can help. Phyla is the ultimate game changer. It tackles acne right at its root cause rebalancing the skin's bacteria and packing it with probiotic phages. Phyla harnesses the superpowers of probiotics, tiny warriors targeting and wiping out the acne-causing bacteria. In studies, Phyla slashed acne-causing bacteria by a whopping 90%. Phyla doesn't just fix acne you can see. It stops new breakouts in their tracks. It has no harsh chemicals and won't irritate or dry most skin. Phyla's three-step system is like a dermatologist-approved magic potion. Cleanse, apply serum, and moisturize twice a day. As a special treat for our listeners, you can grab 25% off your first order of Phyla. Head over to phylabiotics.com, enter code PUBERTY at checkout, and kickstart your family's journey to acne-free skin. Check out the link in our show notes for quick access. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hi, I'm Cara Natterson. And I'm Vanessa Kroll-Bennett. Each week, we dive into the what and how of raising kids through puberty, that roller coaster of physical and emotional shifts for kids and parents alike. Combining reliable science and relatable parenting strategies, we will all learn about, laugh about, and yes, maybe even cry about adolescence, ours and theirs. We are so happy to welcome to the podcast today, Melinda Wenner-Moyer, a contributing editor at Scientific American Magazine and a regular contributor to the New York Times, Washington Post, and other national magazines and newspapers. She's a faculty member in the Science, Health, and Environmental Reporting Program at NYU's Arthur Carter Journalism Institute. Her first book, How to Raise Kids Who Aren't Assholes, was published in July, 2021. Melinda lives in the Hudson Valley with her seven-year-old daughter, her 10-year-old son, her 12-year-old dog, and her husband, whose age I will not give. Melinda, welcome. We are so happy to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. So let's start with the premise of the book, mostly because it's like the best title of a book ever, (laughs) ever, ever. Like I I would have, if this was about nothing at all and the pages were empty, I would have bought this book just based on the title itself. But luckily it is chock full of amazing research information and and advice. So talk Cara and I through like the basic premise and then we're going to dive into some specifics. Okay. So this was back around 2018 and I was just getting increasingly frustrated by all the bad behavior I was seeing around me from people in positions of political power. And um, if you remember, all the Me Too allegations were coming to light around then. And so it was just like everybody seemed like they were behaving badly. And I also noticed that rates of bullying had been going up and also hate crimes. And I started getting really worried about my kids and like who they were going to become in the midst of all this like madness and terribleness. And I realized like what I wanted more than anything else was to raise kids who were not going to grow up to be assholes. Like I I basically didn't want to raise kids who were going to be Donald Trump, to be perfectly honest. And I started talking with other parents and they, they were saying they were thinking the same thing. Cause I feel, I feel like, you know, a lot of times we focus on like, we want to make sure our kids are successful. And like, we, we think about all these things and like, we want to make sure they get into college and we want to make sure they're happy. But what I was feeling was there was like a a kind of like a shift that was happening where parents were more and more thinking about like, well, how do I just make sure they're good humans? And that's when that, that was really like, when I was like, oh, maybe, 
maybe this should be my book because I'd been wanting to write a book. I'd been writing about parenting, but I couldn't kind of figure out what I wanted to focus on. And I realized there was also like a lot of research on the issue of building values in kids and raising kids with good character that hadn't really been investigated or translated for a, a parent audience. And yeah, one day I was just out actually to dinner with my husband. Um, it was right in the middle of the Brett Kavanaugh hearings, if you remember those. And I like had a sip of, I remember it's like a plum cocktail. And I remember taking a sip, putting it down and just being like, I should write a book called How to Raise Kids Who Aren't Assholes. And it just came out. And then I looked at my husband and and we were both like, oh my God, <laughs> I think that's your book. And literally the next morning I emailed my agent. And I was like, I think I have my book or at least I have the title. And like, that's where it came out. <laughs> And so maybe we can jump in a little bit um, into some of the content because we'd love to pick your brain about some of the things that you write about in the book. And I think the first thing is lying, right? Uh, You write a whole chapter about lying. You write a lot about younger kids in the book. This is the Puberty Podcast. When we first connected, you said, I'm not sure how much I know about puberty. You know a lot about puberty based upon what's written in your book. I'm just telling you. (laughs) And you're right on the cusp with your own kids. But in the lying chapter, you talk about the run-up to lying in puberty by outlining the different steps of learning to lie in young childhood. And I think it would be wonderful if you could just walk through a little bit the path of learning how to tell a lie and why it's important. And then I'm sort of wondering what you anticipate level four will be for you. You go through three steps. Level four is puberty. And when they start to lie as tweens and teens. And I'm I'm sort of curious what your research has led you to believe there. Yeah. The lying chapter was one of my like sort of reassuring chapters in some ways, because when I talked to researchers who studied lying in kids, they were like, look, every kid lies. And actually it's like an important part of child development (laughs) that kids start to lie. So if, and when your kids lie, it is not a sign that they are, you know, demonic. Like it is just a sign that they are normal children. And yes. And also like, it was really interesting to learn some of the cognitive things that have to be in place in order for kids to lie well, or even just in, in order for them to lie. Kids have to, if you think about it, like let's say your kid breaks a vase and they don't want you to know. And so they lie and say, no, I didn't break the vase. And then they have to, so they have to be able to kind of put themselves in your shoes and and understand what knowledge you have and what knowledge you don't have. And then be able to give answers to your questions that like align with what you supposedly know and don't know. And this requires a skill called theory of mind, which is essentially the ability to take another person's perspective, to put yourself in someone else's shoes, to know like what another person knows, or at least, you know, to surmise what they know and also like what they're feeling and, and, and to recognize that another person can be feeling something different from you. It's something that as adults, we, it seems so simple, but like, it's actually a really complicated skill. And so this is why, like when kids start lying, they're often pretty terrible liars. They, they aren't very good at being able to do that. And the first lies that kids usually come up with are lies to, you know, protect their butts, essentially like, yeah, to say like, I didn't draw, I didn't break that base. You know, that wasn't me like, um, to keep them from getting out of trouble. And then as they get older, kids will, will start telling more complicated lies. And of course, lying is complicated too, because there's a lot like in our culture that actually um, encourages lying. When we talk about white lies, for instance, these are considered pro-social lies and they are very accepted in our culture. And we often encourage our kids to tell white lies. Like when grandma comes to visit and we're like, please tell grandma that you loved her sweater, even though I know you hated it. Like, please, you know, so, so we do this all the time. Um, and, and like, there's all these ways in which we, as parents model lying for our kids, like when telemarketers call and we make up excuses that like, we can't talk to them because we're in the middle of dinner when really we're just sitting on the couch, reading a book. Or, you know, I, I remember one time with my kids, my I think, okay, we had planned to take my kids to like one of those indoor playgrounds, you know, those like horrible indoor playgrounds in the mall that are just like, now that, now that COVID's happened, I'm like, I can't believe we ever did things like that. Where like kids are like licking things. And anyway, we woke up that morning and we had said that we were going to take them. And then my daughter was sick 
And um, so we, we kept her home. Um, we did not let her go and lick everything sick. But my husband said to my son, like, Let, let's still go, but let's tell your sister that like, we're just going to the grocery store. And like, that's something that, you know, this is my, my husband basically encouraging my son to lie, modeling lying. I remember my son being like, dad, that's a lie. Like my, my husband being like, um, yeah, I guess so, but let's still do it. Um, anyway, so there's all these ways that we lie to that's like acceptable in our culture. And I think that's something important to keep in mind as parents, when we expect our kids to be perfectly honest, we're doing so in the like realm of a society that actually encourages and models lying a lot. And so it's no wonder that our kids are gonna lie. Like it's just part of how we do things in our culture. Hey, it's Cara. We all know puberty isn't always easy. One of the trickiest pieces of the puberty puzzle is boobs. When will I get them? Why are they so tender? And why does every bra out there seem to pull, push, pad, itch, scratch, or be so flimsy it doesn't do a thing? That's where Umla comes in. It's a company that makes puberty comfortable, a company I founded with my friend Julie. When our own daughters began the puberty journey, We couldn't find a decent starter bra anywhere, so we made one. It fits perfectly whether boobs are just starting to bud or they've been growing for a few years. We call it the Umbra, and it's game-changing. The Umbra is made from buttery cotton that feels like second skin, ridiculously soft and so comfortable you'll forget you're wearing anything at all. Umbra's one-of-a-kind support comes from its patented layered design that creates gentle compression without any tight binding, which also means it doesn't need any bulky, awkward pads because it's built to seamlessly hide nipples and protect against those dreaded ouch moments throughout the day. Our daughters and their friends are done with puberty, but they still love and wear their Umbra's. It's why we say that the Umbra may be your first bra, but it will definitely be your favorite bra. Come say hi, look around, and find your Umbra, plus lots of other puberty info at myoomla.com. That's M-Y-O-O-M-L-A dot com. Hey, it's Vanessa. I started a company called Dynamo Girl, and one of the coolest parts of my work is running our Dynamo Puberty Workshops for hundreds of families across the country. We teach the anatomy and physiology involved in puberty because so many adults never learned it and kids have so many questions about it. In our workshops, we also talk about the feelings involved in puberty. For kids, it's often tricky stuff around friendships and body image and social media and just being in our families. And for adults, it's the constant struggle of wanting to support our kids in the most loving ways we can, even when it feels like they just want us to be quiet. This December, we'll be running two virtual Dynamo workshops that will get to all those questions and more. On December 4th, join me and my Dynamo colleagues to learn about male puberty. And on December 11th, join us to learn about female puberty. People of all genders are welcome to attend all workshops. You can go to www.dynamogirl.com to learn more and register for our workshops or check out the show notes for links to register. We hope to see you there. Vanessa, we literally have three minutes to eat lunch every day. I am not joking. And the challenge is how to make it delicious and healthy and still fit into that tiny window. Our answer is factors ready to eat meals. They have been a godsend. We throw our factor meals in the microwave. It takes two minutes and out comes a gorgeous, fresh, never frozen meal. We both love the tamale vegetarian one. It's delish. There's a ton of options every week. There's 60 add-ons, breakfast, snacks, beverages. I love doing the wellness shots with my kids. They think it's hilarious. And I know they're getting vitamins and minerals in their bodies. So get meals on your table or at your desk in two minutes or less. Factor meals eliminate the hassle of prepping, cooking, and cleaning. You can customize with flexibility to get as much or as little as you need, and you can press pause or reschedule depending upon your lifestyle. So to order, 
Go to factormeals.com slash puberty50 and use the code puberty50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That code is puberty50 at factormeals.com slash puberty50 to get 50% off your first box, 20% off your next box. And I am going to go do that right now because I need more factor meals in my refrigerator. Cara, lately I have been lying awake at night. I'm physically exhausted, but I can't sleep because my mind is so wired with everything going on between work and my family. So I've added magnesium breakthrough to my nightly routine and it actually helps calm my mind. It helps me get better sleep and I wake up feeling better rested. I'm less cranky and I'm more patient with my family and with you. Oh, I've noticed. And it's because unlike other magnesium supplements that might give one or two formulations of magnesium, Magnesium Breakthrough has seven. That's why you're sleeping so well and waking up refreshed. Now, dietary supplementation is always best, Vanessa. So that means eating your minerals and vitamins is the best way to get them in. But if you can't or you don't get enough, Magnesium Breakthrough is the way to go. It can also help digestion, though too much helps your digestion too much, which is not a good thing. It can support muscle recovery. So bye-bye, Charlie horses. And it helps build dense bones, which is especially important for women approaching and in menopause. We have an exclusive offer for our listeners. You can go to buyoptimizers.com slash puberty, B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S.com slash puberty. And you can use the code PUBERTY10 during checkout to save 10%. That promo code is PUBERTY10 at buyoptimizers.com slash puberty. Your body and brain and family and business partner will thank you. Cara, my kids love Magic Spoon cereal. And even though it's cereal, they actually love it as a homework snack. The variety pack has four flavors, cocoa, fruity, frosted, and peanut butter. And fruity is the favorite flavor in my house. Now, this pack has zero grams of sugar, between 13 and 14 grams of protein, and between four and five grams of net carbs per serving. It's made with wholesome ingredients, no artificial flavors or dyes, and it's high in protein, gluten-free, grain-free, and soy-free. So a great choice, Vanessa. You can go to magicspoon.com slash puberty to grab a variety pack and try it today. And be sure to use our, you guessed it, promo code puberty at checkout to save $5 off your order. And Magic Spoon is so confident you're going to love their product. It's backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they will refund your money. No questions asked. They do not want you to send their cereal back to them. Try a bowl of Magic Spoon cereal today at magicspoon.com slash puberty and use the code puberty to save $5. Hi, I'm Haley Hubbard. Hi, I'm Jessica Diamond. This is our show, Meaningful Living, where we break down the overwhelming amount of parenting, lifestyle, and relationship information into credible and digestible knowledge and tools. Parenting is hard, and the thousands of decisions we're forced to make every day can feel daunting. While we've never had access to so much information, it's never been harder to find the knowledge we need to feel confident in the choices we make. We're sharing completely uncensored information here. It can be messy, but it's always fun and always real. Check out Meaningful Living anywhere you listen to your podcast. It takes a village and we can't wait for you to join ours. So if the first step is to model not lying, which I think is a solid kind of step in the right direction, let's think about what are occasions when a kid, a tween or a teen where maybe we kind of overlook the lie or we don't freak out about it or we don't punish them, right? Like what are those moments where it's kind of, we can kind of understand why they might be lying? Do we let it go? How do we respond? Because bigger kids, bigger problems, right? Bigger kids, probably bigger lies. And someone I learned early on when my one of my kids was like seven and he was lying all the time. And I was like, oh my God, what is going on? I'm a terrible mother. I'm raising a liar. And then I read somewhere that it's a fear of disappointing parents. It's a, it's a like, it's a perfectionist thing, right? Like if I lie about having messed up, then no one will know I messed up. 
as kids get older, I'm wondering they're going to make bigger mistakes. The lies may be bigger or not. Like, yes, I did my laundry when really they didn't do their laundry. Yes, I changed my sheets when really they didn't change their sheets. Fine. How do we figure out what are okay lies to kind of look past? And how do we figure out how to address those lies in a way that's kind of empathic and constructive and not punishing? Yeah. I think you already kind of alluded to this in the way you asked this, but I think it's really important for us to think about why our kids lied. Like what, what was the root of this? What, what were they lying to protect or what were they worried about? Um, Cause I think so much of helping kids make better choices is really like, first we have to understand why they made the bad choice. And then And that can involve like having a conversation that's actually, you know, not like a a conversation where we're angry and yelling at them for lying, but where we actually like sit down and say, okay, well, so what, what was going on? Like, why did you feel like you needed to lie? Um, What was going on? Like really trying to understand the context. And then once we understand that and we understand like where they were coming from and what they were thinking, it's easier for us to come up with suggestions and ways that they like in a way could have handled this better that we could talk to them about. So instead of, I think so much of our reactions are, you know, we're angry. Like we sometimes will shame our kids for, for making mistakes, for doing something wrong, but then they kind of, they don't want to listen anymore and they're in defensive mode. And instead to sort of very empathically, as you said, or empathetically, whatever the right word is I don't know. I use them interchangeably (laughs) and I'm like never sure if they're both actual words or if I'm making one of them up. I think they're both words. As long as you're not saying irregardless. Right. That's not okay. That's now a word. Someone just told us, Cara, that's now a word. It is, but it's Marion Webster. It's yeah. Yeah. But they're wrong. So if anyone's listening to this episode and wants to write in and let us know the difference, that would be really wonderful. Thank you very much. I would love to learn. Yeah. One study that I talked about in my lying chapter that comes to mind in this moment as we're talking about this, there was a study in which researchers had kids who went to different kinds of schools come in. Some of the kids went to a very strict, like what was kind of like an authoritarian school where there was like, I think there was even like physical punishments and stuff. Like it was just very, very strict. And if the kids broke rules, they got in trouble. Um, And then they had also kids from a much more sort of like child-centered approach school, like, you know, where there's not physical punishment and there's a lot more, you know, empathetic (laughs) response um, to misbehavior and stuff. And they put these two groups of kids like individually into rooms and they gave the kids essentially an opportunity to lie. So I'm not going to get the description exactly right, but essentially they would um, tell the kids not to peek at a particular toy. They would say, okay, we're going to have you like guess what this toy is based on the noise it makes, but don't look at it. And then the the researcher would say, oh, shoot, I have to go get something, run out of the room. Most of the kids would look, they would peek. And then the researcher would come back in and they would say, did you peek? And they would see whether the kids lied about peeking or not peeking. They found that the kids who went to the much more punitive school lied much, much more than the kids who went to the much more sort of empathetically run school. And not only did they lie a lot more, but they were much better at lying. And the idea here is, yeah, like they're so afraid of getting into trouble and they feel like they can't, you know, be honest with their teachers about what happens if they make a mistake. They think that, you know, any, any kind of mistake is going to get them into trouble, that they choose lying instead to protect themselves. And so I think we can learn from that as parents, like the more that we can make it so that we are, are people that our kids can come to and not immediately be judged, but, you know, we can listen empathetically and we can provide like guidance instead of like correction in a way, the, the less likely I think our kids are to lie to us. I just want to throw in my two kids went to a very traditional kindergarten through sixth grade school, which was much more in the vein of the more rigid school you described in your book. And then in middle and high school, they went to a very progressive school. And it was interesting reading your line chapter and thinking about, you know, they they went through all of the stages you described, testing with lies and and trying to figure out where the limits were and understanding how how thorough we were with our consequences and all those things. And that all coincided with their 
grade school education. But when they moved to the progressive school, which was much more about empathy and much less about rigidity, I found that their teenage lies, which don't go away, right? (laughs) No matter how inclusive and permissive a school you send your kids to, this is a normal part of life and this is appropriate. But they did, in fact, evolve into kids who, when they told a lie, would often think differently about how they explained themselves later. And I have no basis of comparison because that is how they've been educated and that is the world that they're in. But the, as Vanessa said, bigger kids, bigger lies. It's been interesting having kids in an environment where thinking about how other people feel is the primary focus. And then when I catch them lying, they actually think about how I feel. So I don't have to wound them with that. You made me feel so bad because it's, they, they understand that piece and it's just about the lie now, you know, it's very, so um, I think where you've headed, your trajectory is going to serve you very well as a parent, frankly, because I think you're, you're exactly right about the approach. It's interesting too, like in reading the research I did about discipline, one of the techniques that I have not heard people talk about much that I was reading about that really was convincing in terms of the research was this technique called induction, which is essentially anytime your child does something that you don't particularly appreciate, you always tie that action of theirs to its effect on other people. So instead of just saying like, don't leave your Legos on the floor, you would say like, don't leave your Legos on the floor because otherwise I'm going to step on one and it's really going to hurt. And so always connecting action to its impact on other people and its impact on other people's feelings. And that really works like much, much better than just telling them what to do or not to do. I'm sure that's effective. It sounds like it would be so exhausting to do that all the time. <laughs> right. Well, I don't think anybody can do any of this well, all and my of the time. Always right? like, whenever I like tell my kids something and he's like, tell them why. And I was like, they know why. And then I say to them, do you know why I'm asking you to do this? And they'll be like, yes, because it's helpful or not helpful or annoying or irritating or whatever it is. It's like, but that may also be because I, in the past, practiced induction without knowing the research behind it. And they like have internalized it. So in the context of thinking about how what we do and say affects other people, I really want to dive into your chapter around sexism and how not to raise a sexist, particularly as someone who created a company to help build girls up, which was born of my daughter's experience in sports classes where she was being gender stereotyped either when she was with an all-male class, except for her, the coaches would say to the boys, Look at Zion. Zion is so respectful. Zion listens so well. Zion follows the rule. And I was like, okay, we're out of here. And then when she was in a class with all girls, she was, she's a really aggressive athlete. She's very physical. She's very strong. And the coaches couldn't handle it because she was a girl acting, quote unquote, like a boy. And I basically started Dynamo Girl because I could not find sports programs that spoke to all the different things that she is and was and used language that was empowering and supportive and non-gendered expectations. So in reading your chapter about how not to raise a sexist, I found it really resonant. I'm also raising three sons. In addition, and I would love for Carr to just talk, you and Carr to talk about this a little bit, is the concept of gender, which is something we come up against all the time as we talk about puberty, we talk about gender identification and sexuality, and we're often hosting folks like you and many other brilliant people who are using research, which often divides people along lines of gender. And that's complicated for us. I'm sure you you talk about it in the book. So Card, do me a favor and just like talk a little bit about our philosophy on gender in the context of the podcast. And then Melinda, I'd love for us to really dive into this topic around sexism with all of that background in place. You know, when we talk about puberty, the assumption is that there's girl puberty and boy puberty and they're so different. That's sort of the starting point for most people. And both Vanessa and I come at the topic very differently. Neither one of us really believes that puberty is all that gendered. 
And we understand completely that there is a physical transformation piece of puberty that is almost entirely driven by your genetics, the balance of different hormones in your body, testosterone, estrogen, progesterone, and everything else. Um, And there are a whole host of them. Those are gendered, right? So parts are parts and hormone balances are hormone balances. But we are both of the belief that that is a very small part of puberty, that puberty is a process of physical, emotional, and social transformation that occurs over the course of seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years. And a lot of people would call that adolescence. And that's true. That is the definition of adolescence. But it's very hard to separate out the maturation of your reproductive organs, which is the puberty specific piece, and all the rest of it. Because when reproductive organs mature, everything changes for kids socially and emotionally. And so we tend on this podcast to steer away from gendering, even though there's an obvious gender component. I always point to the books that I write, The Care and Keeping of You and Guy Stuff. And I talk about how, you know, in a hundred pages of book, only 20 pages are gender specific. Everything else in those books is essentially the same content, just written in different font with slightly different illustrations, but it's all the same content because there's nothing gendered about nutrition and there's nothing gendered about sleep. And God knows there's nothing gendered about using a bar of soap in the shower. And so, you know, that that is where we come from. Your writing on the subject and your research was very, very familiar to us. I vibed with everything you wrote in there, which was amazing to see because you come at it from the science journalism perspective. And it always makes me feel better that my research is legit, <laughs> that I got what, that I got to the same point you did. Um, and so I, I think that's where I'll leave those comments. And, and now if you can share with everyone your thoughts on how not to raise a sexist. Yes, this was, I think, my longest chapter, and it's certainly the most complicated. So, because it is just a very nuanced issue, and there's a lot to say. (laughs) So, I think the first thing to think about when we think about how we convey gender to kids um, as parents, as just in our culture, is we emphasize gender so much in everything that we do. And honestly, it's like, I mean, it's built into our language and everything we say to kids, we are indicating gender. So, I mean, it's it's in the pronouns. When we refer to people, he or she, we are indicating their gender. Um, When we say the lady over there, the man in line, you know, these are a million, like maybe not millions, thousands of times a day we were referring to gender. And this is something, if you think about it, like there's not another characteristic that we communicate to our kids about people every time we talk about them, right? We don't like convey their height or their eye color or their skin color or their hair color when we talk about people, but we are always indicating their gender. And kids are, they're like detectives. They're trying to figure out what matters in the world. They're trying to figure out why the world looks the way it does. And when we are hitting them over the head every day with gender matters, gender is important. This is something they absorb very readily. And they kind of start to think of, okay, well, if, if, if everybody's talking about gender all the time and emphasizing it, then it must mean something. And this must mean that girls and boys are different in some very important way. Because, I mean, this is the kind of thing that you would conclude if somebody's hitting you over the head with something like, okay, this must be important. Um, and they are also seeing the hierarchy, the gender hierarchy that exists in our society. I mean, there's never been a female president. That's a really salient one. But all over the place. They're seeing like men and women have very different kinds of jobs and these jobs have very different levels of status. And generally speaking, like men have more power, more wealth. They are portrayed differently. They're described differently. We have, and and, and there's also like all the other ways in which we separate gender. We have different bathrooms. We have different sports teams. We have different happy meals at McDonald's. I mean, just everything, right? And when kids are combining this idea that, okay, the genders must be important and different because they're always being referred to with 
the hierarchy they see, they naturally start to think, well, maybe the difference is that boys are just smarter and better and more powerful and girls are the opposite. And we also have to consider the subtler ways that we are essentially sending these messages to kids all the time. Like, okay, when I went to visit my parents um, a couple of weeks ago, I really hope they're not going to listen to this. I noticed, because I was paying close attention, that every time my daughter would enter the room, they would make a comment about her appearance every single time. It was like, what a pretty dress. Oh, I really like your braid. Look at your shoes. Those are such cute shoes. Oh, I love, uh, I mean, everything. Your big eyes. You have such big eyes. Everything was tied to her appearance, every kind of feedback she got. And what does that tell her? It tells her that like her appearance is, is part of what defines her. It's like one of her most important characteristics. But with my son, he would walk into the room and they wouldn't ever comment on his appearance. And they would be, you know, asking him about school or they would be talking to him, like they would engage him in math problems. Like they would, I mean, it was just worlds different, the kinds of interactions they were having with my parents. So you take all of this and it's like, it's no wonder that kids think A, like boys and girls are very different. B, boys seem better in a way than girls. And see, there's just totally different expectations for what boys should be like and for what girls should be like. And this is what fuels like the development of gender stereotypes. This, you know, these ideas that like boys shouldn't be scared. They should be tough. They shouldn't cry and girls should be pretty. And you know, that that's the most important thing for them is to focus on their appearance. And these gender stereotypes ultimately are really dangerous. Like if you look at the research. So Kids who have stronger beliefs and gender stereotypes, who, you know, boys who think that boys should be tough, for instance, those boys are more likely to, when they're tweens and teens, to sexually harass girls at school. And they're actually more likely to like grab them and, you know, and grope them. And, and then ultimately as adults, men who believe in these gender stereotypes more strongly are more likely to assault women. (laughs) So you see this like trajectory really from like just this the way that we talk about and emphasize gender to this idea that boys and girls have different value and that we should be treating them differently and that it's okay for men to do things to girls. Like it's, it's really messy and it's sometimes hard to see the links, but like it's all connected and it's all ultimately really bad. So I want to dive into that aspect of it, the aspect of what happens down the road when younger boys embrace gender stereotypes. And I want to talk about testosterone because Cara, you, you, I want you to say more about this, but you know, we do know that testosterone is just, they're just swimming in it and puberty and young adulthood and males, there's more aggression, there's more anger. There's a, you know, a sense of, of dominance. There's a gro- a physical growth and musculature, right? Like there's increased strength. So Cara, from a pediatrician's perspective, what is understandable? What is okay? What is expected with that sort of flood of testosterone? And what is unacceptable acculturation as a result of all the stuff, Melinda, that you were talking about? I'm going to answer that, but I need to... (laughs) But I need to rewind for one second and go to one quick side note story about a close family friend who raised their daughter, who happened to be objectively quite beautiful by most social standards. And they raised her in a home where they, they never commented on her beauty. And they said to their parents, the grandparents, don't make it about looks, don't make it about looks, make it about how interesting you are, how smart you are, how strong you are, right? Very feminist upbringing. And as a teenager, that now young, young woman, budding young woman, started to talk about how she had low self-esteem. She had low self-esteem because no one in her life, and and by the way, her family was transparent with her. They said, we just don't want the world to value for you for how you look. And so we're, this is what we do. And she said, okay, that makes sense to me, but it makes me question how I look and it makes me have low self-esteem because no one ever told me I was pretty. So it very, very interesting dynamic there, the, the 
seeds are planted so deeply in our world, I think, in terms of the gender stereotypes and sometimes what some families may do to try to overcome them while very valiant might not work as well as they would hope because we live in a larger culture that still has all these values. And I just want to share that story because it's it's very messy and complicated as you described, Melinda, so messy and complicated. But the testosterone question is, I think, a great one because people who listen to this podcast now know that when boys go into puberty, the very first sign of boys entering puberty is that their testicles will start to grow. The reason their testicles grow is that's where the testosterone is made. The factories have to come online. They have to be able to produce more and more of this chemical that will then drive a lot of the processes that evolve in the body, right? So they'll drive the stretching of the vocal cords and that helps the voice to deepen. Um, Testosterone drives the shift to lean muscle mass, right? It drives the penis to grow and the testicles themselves to keep growing. I mean, there's an end point to that, but it takes a while. But um, testosterone is very much at the heart of the turning on and the maintenance of the male puberty machine. And it all starts in the brain with hormones that tell the testicles to make testosterone. But really, we focus a lot on testosterone and that's what a lot of studies measure in terms of health and wellness in terms of markers of growth, also in terms of mood swings. And there's a tremendous amount of data about male aggression and testosterone levels. And you can look at studies from across the decades. And, you know, you look at prison populations and average testosterone levels and violent offenders versus nonviolent offenders. And violent offenders are often found to have higher average testosterone levels, which is then correlated with their aggression and rage. And you look at, you know, sort of the mood swinging of the typical adolescent male. And while no one talks about why boys go quiet, many, many studies look at why they get angry and rageful and many point straight to testosterone. And I think, Vanessa, what your question is, is if this is physiologically what's happening inside the male body and the male brain, is this then driving the epidemic of sexism? In order to undo the narrative of sexism that has evolved in our society, do we have to look at these biological processes And I think in addition to asking that question is a second question, which is how do societies that don't have rampant sexism, how do matriarchies do it? Because the humans are built the same way. The testicles exist in those communities too. And so do do surging levels of testosterone. And so I think, I think Vanessa, that's the heart of your question. Yeah, I mean, I think, and Melinda, I want to let you weigh in here more specifically because the boys will be boys or another version of that is testosterone will do what testosterone will do is is really only a piece of the conversation. And I was curious from your perspective, I mean, you speak specifically about a bunch of stuff parents and adults can do in the book to counteract that but do you have kind of a favorite tool or tactic for, I mean, like for instance, you know, not using gendered language, it's not, hey, hey guys or hey girls or my least favorite, hey ladies. I hate it when coaches call girls ladies. It makes me absolutely bananas. But then there's deeper stuff about boys understanding gender stereotypes and how that can kind of lay a foundation or groundwork. So when the testosterone does kick in, they've sort of built up this foundation. You know, you talk about economic imbalance, power imbalance, all of those things. But like if you're sitting down with your 10-year-old son and you're like, I have two minutes to give him this message as he is, you know, going to embark on puberty in the next few years. What what does that sound like to you? What does that message sound like to you? Well, I can say what I try to do with my son as much as I can, which is I am 
constantly like picking up on the ways that I see the world reinforcing gender stereotypes in front of him. And this, I do this with my daughter too. And then like talk about it in the moment. And so if we're watching a TV show, here's an example. We were watching the Olympics over the weekend and the women's kayaking was on and the announcer called them girls. (laughs) And (laughs) I mean, they're like, 28 year old women here. And he called them girls. And like, that is, is a thing where you can just pause and say, if your kids are sitting there, like, did you hear that announcer just referred to those women as girls? Do you think when the men's kayaking is on that the announcer refers to them as boys? Like, does girls feel like the right word? And, and why do you think he thought it was okay to use that word? And like, anytime we see these stereotypes kind of playing out. I try to sort of press the pause button and like talk about it with my kids. And, and in a way, like using the Socratic method of like, just asking them, like, what do you think about this? What do you think that, that, how do you think that makes women feel when they hear this or when they see this? How do you think it makes, you know, what is it reinforcing to you as a boy hearing these words at the way that they're being used? So, you know, yeah, the, the hormones are real and they, I'm sure play a role in this. So I guess I think of it as like, what can I do to sort of help like buffer the effects of those hormones by creating this like foundation of, of like awareness in my son and in my daughter about the ways that our culture is like almost like manipulating them into believing these things that don't have to be true, but it's hard. I love the concept of the pause button. I remember the first time I was watching, I don't know, Jesse or one of these Disney shows and, uh, guy kissed a girl and didn't ask for permission. And my daughter, I think it was like seven at the time. And she was like, hold up. That's not okay. He didn't ask. He just did it. And I was like, okay, I'm out. My job is done. Like if you know, (laughs) if you know that that is what should be going on. But then I thought back to all of the movies and all of the TV shows I had watched where, you know, the romantic thing is that a male just grabs a female or vice versa. A female grabs a male without asking or permission. So I love the idea of the pause button. I'm just telling you both now I'm reserving that for my practical puberty tip at the end of this episode because Melinda, later we're going to ask you for a practical tip and I'm calling dibs on hitting the pause button. So just just so you know, in case either of you wanted it, you don't get it. Um, Or we can both say the same thing. So I really, I I think that's wonderful calling it out because the other thing that calling it out in the moment and doing it quickly is that you can't lecture them. Like if you're watching a show or you're watching a sports event and they want to keep going you can't lecture them for 15 minutes. You have to do it. You got to get in and out. You got to say one or two things. And so it keeps you it keeps you disciplined in terms of your noticing and in terms of the conversation, which I think is so critical, particularly when we talk about sex and we talk about porn, which is our next topic. Wait, you- don't go there yet though. I have a quick question. Melinda, we talk often on this podcast about how this generation of kids really is far more colorblind and far more genderblind than generations that came before in the most beautiful and incredible ways. And I'm just wondering if you think that some of the shifting of the norm and some of the graying of the spectrum in those regards and in other regards is going to help a little bit to unwrite the sexist narrative. If our parenting work, our burden goes down just a little because our kids are growing up in a different world. And frankly, if it's us, I say, hey guys, all the freaking time. And it may, and I catch myself and it makes me crazy. And I actually think I do it much more than my kids do it. So is it really us? that need the lessons. Yeah, I do it too. Um, my daughter, her best friend lives across the street. And every time they come in together, I I will say like, hey girls or hey ladies. And then I'm like, oh my God, and catch myself. And because <laughs> it really does come easily to us. Yes, I think, I think there is a, a big shift happening in 
kids right now and I'm hearing, you know, my sister has teenagers and she's talked to me about how like they just conceive of gender so differently than we do. And it's wonderful. And so, yes, I do think a shift is already happening, you know, but I also know that I think that there's like pockets of the country where there's still very, very strong gender stereotypes being passed along to kids. So, you know, I think it's like there's great strides happening in some parts of the country and in some bubbles and then maybe not so much in others. And I do think that it's the hardest for us because we have been socialized from when we were kids to, you know, to think a certain way about gender. And it's really hard to unravel that once it's like built into you. So Melinda, you've given us just an nth of all of the super practical, helpful, research-based information that you have in the book. It's so excellent. How to Raise Kids Who Aren't Assholes is incredibly helpful. It's great for kids, parents of kids of all ages. It's great for educators, coaches, counselors, teachers, all of those folks. And it's really wonderful. We really appreciate your coming on. Love talking to you. I hope this isn't the one and only time we get to have you on the podcast. I hope not too. This was so fun. So thank you so much, both of you, Vanessa and Cara. This is, and it was just great to like get to chat with you. I feel like I have known you through social media. It's like wonderful. And through your books, like it's wonderful to chat. Well, we cannot wait for the follow-up, how to raise teenagers who aren't assholes. So can you get on that? That would be You're the second person to ask me to write that particular book, actually. So I'm or how to raise dogs who aren't assholes, which was a conversation you and I had before the podcast started. And I could anyone who knows me knows I could use that book too. (laughs) So keep keep writing, keep sharing, keep guiding us, Melinda. It's wonderful. And thank you so much for coming on. It's so great to be here. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. You can follow us anywhere you get your podcasts or check out our Instagram at The Puberty Podcast. If you have questions or stories to share, email us at thepubertypodcast at gmail.com. And for more puberty info, check out myoomla.com or dynamogirl.com. Bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.